0: Voices that inspire the extended interview.
1: Reggie Ellis, Associate Professor of History and Assistant Dean in the School of Graduate Studies Research and Continuing Education at Florida a University.
0: So how did you get on the path you're on? How did you find your way into academia and and FAMU?
1: Well, it started, I, my mother worked at Florida a University Um from 1972 until she transitioned in 2012 and so she was the office manager uh in the department of history and uh, many of my mentors were uh, individuals like Dr. Larry Rivers who you know really mentored me f- my entire life and so uh growing up it was almost as though i had no option but to be um, in higher ed um, because the individuals that I saw on a daily basis um, were black men and women who had earned PhDs and so it wasn't abnormal for me um, uh, to want to do something like that and so uh, now I had the opportunity to be able to do it and also give back in the way that was given to me
0: So you really were influenced by having strong mentors
1: Yes, I uh, uh, so my father was um, uh, killed in an automobile accident in 1988, and one of the things that I saw is the way, particularly the family uh, atmosphere from those professors at Florida a and I grew up in a small community in Wiggum, Georgia, but it's even smaller than Wiggum. It's so small that it's called the Sixteens, uh, and it represents the 16th voting District of Grady County, Georgia. Um, probably less than a hundred people, and FAMU showed up uh, in on June, uh, July of 1988, and they showed up in a way that I never forgot, and um, and so, you know, people like Dr. Rivers uh, from that point forward kind of challenged me, and encouraged me, said every A that you earn, I give you a twenty dollar bill for. And he'll tell you uh, I almost uh, uh, bankrupted him (laughs) because uh, I I accepted that challenge. And so my passion for history was really um, poured into me at a very, very young age. And it was just those individuals wanting to see me excel. Um, and, And really, that shows, from my assessment, the power of mentorship. Those individuals did not have to go that step. Uh, but they did, and I think it was really uh, a testament to how they felt about my mother.
0: I I can't even imagine how important that must have been for your mother to feel that those arms reached down. Especially, were you her only child?
1: No, I have an older sister um, and a stepbrother. I'm the baby of the family, and so, um, but I think if she were here today i think she will say that I, the the concept of a village raising a child i was raised by a village uh uncles aunts and members of the department of history and political science public administration uh, at florida and m university raised me um and so i definitely did not get where i am today by myself um and so uh, you know the love and the passion that i have for florida and m university it, it's not just for, uh, for a four-year or a five-year academic journey. It really is a lifetime journey. These individuals raised me from a boy uh, to a man. And so when I went off to the University of Memphis, people ask all the time, were you you know, afraid, or what have you, or did you have imposter syndrome? I never felt that I did, because those individuals poured so much into me. Um, uh, at a very, very young age, that I felt comfortable and confident to be able to do whatever it was that I set out to do, and so uh, you know, at any table uh, that I'm in or any room that I am, I believe I belong, uh, and I think that's because of what was poured into me.
0: I love the fact that it was history that caught your passion. And how how was that presented to you? Did Dr. Rivers tell you stories? Like how did you get that passion for history?
1: So one of the things I remember as a in high school, this is right before the Rosewood movie came out. Dr. Rivers and a team of historians were actually working on the Rosewood case here in the state of Florida for reparations purposes, and um, he agreed to come to my high school, Cairo High School. Uh, my senior year, which would have been in 1999, to do a presentation on Rosewood, and I remember, you know, my classmates and my teachers' eyes were, you know, just huge uh, at the historical evidence of what he was presenting, and. I was like, wow, in, in some ways he's a superstar right now. And then so when I came to FAMU, my major was uh, occupational therapy, and I changed my major within the first week because I had an introduction to African-American history class by Dr. Murrow Dawson. Um, and in that first presentation, I changed my major because it was the first time in a, in a two-and-a-half-hour class that I had the experience of hearing about black people in a way that I had never heard before. And I remember calling my mother that night about eight thirty nine o'clock, telling her I wanted to change my major. I wanted to be a history major, and then I was going to go to law school to be a civil rights attorney. And, of course, that didn't happen, but I did change my major uh, in that moment.
0: That's such an important point. I mean, it took you having to go to college to hear such an important history for you. And think about all the young people who don't have that opportunity. And, you know, now we're kind of going backwards in how we think about history, that history has to be kind of palatable for all to digest and should not make you feel uncomfortable. But yet history is so important to who we are as people. How do we navigate that?
1: I think that As Americans, we should, from my assessment, want to teach and understand all aspects of history. I think be, the only way that I teach it, even if it's American history, I try to my level best to be as inclusive as possible from uh, whether we're speaking about the European arrival, the Native arrival, the Asian arrival, Hispanic, and, of course, the African-American arrival. Because we need to understand from my assessment, I understood how impactful seeing myself in history was for me as an individual to understand that. You know, slavery was a part of my experience, but Africa was a part as well. But then also overcoming uh, trials and tribulations, but also the, the, the concept of the victories and the role that black people played in America. And I think that if we leave those aspects out, you know, the, the bad, if we leave the bad out, we don't understand how individuals push for good. So you can, you know, and, and so it just really played a very major role in my life and my understanding that, you know, you know, me and a colleague talks about all the time. You talk a kid from Wiggum, Georgia, with about five hundred student, uh, five hundred individuals rather, has a PhD. I mean, that's a story that is probably not believable anywhere, right? When you from a small rural farm town in Southwest Georgia, and I will say. Perhaps the only reason that I have a PhD is because I had access to higher education. But then the passion for history, and and understanding that there were individuals, who, you know, before me who looked like me, walked like me, talked like me, that had the ability to do it, inspired me to do it. And that's, from my assessment, the Im- impact of understanding history.
0: And the, and just you know, you saw people like you who were doing it, so it wasn't a goal that didn't feel unattainable because you had people who were, had paved the way and you had access to those people.
1: I was blessed in that, right? That, and, and I, you know, I was coming of age when Dr. Frederick S. Humphreys was president at FAMU, this larger-than-life individual. One of the reasons my career goal is to be a black college president is largely because I saw how he impacted not just for the A&M University, but really from my assessment in the 80s through the 90s, the concept of HBCUs and how you had generation a generation of individuals that turned back to HBCUs and wanted to go to HBCUs and his concept of providing access and opportunities for people of color and really expanding the black middle class, which in essence expands the middle class in America. And so, um, you know, at a very early age, uh, I said, you know, I want to go, once I get my PhD, I want to go work towards one day becoming a a president, not just to have a title, but to continue to push the the lever of providing assets and opportunities of people of color.
0: It seems like there's the HBCUs are having another kind of heyday, like another moment of... I hope, a sustained moment. I don't mean to put that. I mean, I think it's just really important that people are re revaluing the importance role that an HBCU plays and how critical they are in building that middle class. Why do you think now there's there's been sort of this refocus on HBCUs?
1: I think if we, if we go back to the summer of social justice 2020, with uh, the George Floyd, but prior to Ma Arbery and Brianna Taylor, I think that, and, but then you also had just certain events happening on college campuses, uh, mainstream campuses, uh, campuses, uh, predominantly white uh, institutions, where black people started to come to this idea that they no, no longer wanted to be treated as visitors on these campuses. They wanted to feel belonged, and so... People started to really look at HBCUs once again, and so one of the questions I have asked myself, because that's my research area, um, is the history of black higher education. Is this a moment or a movement, and how do we at HBCUs turn this moment into a movement? How do we sustain this for a generation, 40, 50 years? Um, And some HBCUs are working very, very hard to change this to a movement. So we have to provide not just high-quality academics, but also an experience that these uh, young individuals, uh, colleges are are, an opportunity for individuals to grow from from youth into who they're gonna be, give them that space, give them that opportunity, give them that intellectual curiosity, but also be able to provide the resources that they need to be successful. And I think that you are starting to see several HBCUs take that step to say we don't want this just to be a flash in the pan, a moment, but to really turn this into a movement. And it's exciting time, uh, for my assessment, to see that. Um, but yeah, I think that um, it, it's not just Black people too, right? It's, you're starting to see a real melting pot of individuals who are like minded that are saying, I wanna give a HBCU a chance. We're looking at the curriculum, we're looking at the program, we're also looking at housing, we're looking at uh, uh, dining courts and things of that nature. We, we wanna look at a holistic experience. And I think there are certain HBCUs that are stepping up to, you know, to fill a void in that particular marketplace, right? And, um, and, that's, what, and that's what we are being forced to do if we wanna be in this arena. We have to meet the needs of this current, uh, this present age.
0: I've just finished reading Warmth of Other Suns, Hmm. um, Isabel Wilkerson's book. Hmm. And she tracked, it was about the great migration of African Americans from the South to California, Chicago, or New York. And she sort of tracked three characters, all Real people, And one was a gentleman named George who grew up in the 40s, and he had the opportunity to go to FAMU for two years. And then his father listened to too many people who said, why are you paying all that money for your son to go to college? He could be picking oranges because he was from Lake County. Hmm. You could be picking oranges and, and he could make more money. And he was pulled out after two years, which kind of haunted him the rest of his life. I mean, he never, he he so wanted out of Florida at that time. It was just a terrible environment down in that part of the country or the state. And he ended up working for the trains, being a porter for really his whole career. And here he was, this brilliant man, so smart, but never really fully got to finish his education to prove himself more than that. And it, it was just such a powerful story. Um, I think he was happy he left the South, he moved to Harlem and right when Harlem was really exploding and becoming such a, you know, the sort of Mecca for so many people, but yet he never felt like he reached his full potential. Mm. And I I just, and it was, anyway, just made me think about the power of, the transformational power of education.
1: Yeah. Yeah. and that that is very powerful. When you the thing that inspires me every year, three times a year is graduation, commencement. I try my level best not to miss a commencement because many of those students, you have come across that path. And whether they graduate in four years or six years, what we know is that we have changed the lives of a generation of individuals because Many of those students are first generation, which means prior to them coming to school, there was no one in their family that could help them navigate college. There were perhaps no one in their family that could help them pay for college. So they had to get student loans. They may have had to work two or three jobs, but now they made it. They have entered perhaps even the lower middle class. But now, because they have gone through that process, maybe their cousin— they can help that cousin navigate it. And then when they are married and, you know, 15, uh, 18 years later, their kids now know how to navigate college experience. And they may have saved money for their kids to go. Uh, and, and and so what's exciting to me when I see, you know, 1,100 students graduate in the spring and and X number of 100 students in the fall and the summer, I'm looking out at a generation of individuals that we that i played a small part of changing not just their lives but a generation behind them their lives and that's the impact of these historically black colleges and universities and and, and florida a m university in general when you went to your point going back to the story of this young man who was here for two years then because of the concept of money right the concept of you could make more money by picking oranges uh, that, that's a short-term deal, right? The power of education. You know, Charles Whiteside was told by his former slave owner, you have no freedom because you have no education, and education is what makes a man free. This concept that this higher education that gave, you know, these individuals who graduated, they have an opportunity now. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a blank check or for, you know, riches, but it's a, it's a blank check for intellectual uh, pursuits that are limitless from my assessment.
0: Absolutely. <clears throat> How do you feel, going back to community, you know, here sits Florida A&M in Tallahassee, this rich history, it's been here a long time. How do you think the role of the university has impacted the community?
1: I can tell you, uh, when I was working with uh, some colleagues on the Allen subdivision and the Family Way Project, Florida A&M University was viewed by the community as their institution, whether they went or not. Many of these individuals may not have gone or uh, earned a degree from Florida A&M University. They may have worked at a the university. Um, there was a pride point. Uh, in the state of Florida, not just Tallahassee, but in the state of, and I can say, being in the South Georgia, in the region. Florida a University was, uh, to to borrow a phrase from Ronald Reagan, that golden city on the hill. If you could get to FAMU and you can graduate, it will change your life. And I think that in certain corners of the community, it is still viewed that way. And I think that one of the things that I hope that we can regain is that that idea that we are the shining city on the hill, that we still provide access and opportunities for individuals who have the desire uh, to to pursue that route.
0: I guess I have to ask you this question before, because the series is called Voices That Inspire. What, what keeps you inspired to the work that you're doing?
1: The students. Um, just knowing that I come across students who are freshmen and now with my work in graduate education, and to see them complete what their their journey, and it's not a completion, it's them starting their career after they graduate. It inspires me as a young man to know that for the next 30, 40 years of my life, there will be individuals that I impacted for four or five years that will do greater work than I simply because of the time that we spent together. So that's very, very inspirational for me.
0: It's great. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you would want people to know about you or the work that you do or your passions?
1: Yeah, I just want to make sure that we have HBCUs around so when my now four-year-old daughter, she has an opportunity to choose from one of the 101 that's still left.
0: <laughs> yep. I love it.
1: Reggie Ellis, Associate Professor of History and Assistant Dean in the School of Graduate Studies, Research, and Continuing Education. And my passion is providing access and opportunities for those individuals desiring to go to higher education.